Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open again to John 11. John chapter 11 and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 30 to 37. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you would give us understanding, humility, Father, that you would give us uh, clarity of mind, that you would give us focus as we desire to hear from you as you work by the Spirit in your word preached. And so, Father, I pray that we would be uh, humble of spirit and receive these words that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So previously, Martha had said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we picked that, uh, we picked that apart. We talked about that and what it meant last time. Mary now, following Martha, says the very th- same thing to Jesus. Uh, She too then, as we talked about last time, was this mixture of faith and unbelief. Faith in that they believed that Jesus could heal Lazarus. Um, But only if, you know, Lazarus had not yet died. Unbelief in that Jesus needed to be near, needed to be, you know, in the same proximity to uh, have Lazarus alive, to make him alive, or to heal him from this disease. Notice that we get another detail about Mary in verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. Jesus doesn't engage in conversation with Mary as he did with Martha. Martha have that that back and forth, right? 
I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, some of the most glorious things Jesus ever said, he said with Martha. But now Mary, um, there isn't this back and forth, but, but John does tell us something. He tells us the simple fact that Jesus observes Mary weeping. The Son of God sees one of his children weeping, and it moves him. It moves him, the text says, when, when Jesus saw this and saw Mary's companions weeping. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. This was troubling to him. This was hard. This was... This, this, this hurt. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith has a description of God, and it says that God is without passions, right? That God is without passions. Now, this does not mean that God is emotionless or without feelings. Let's get that out of the way. God is, God is, um, is not just a, an unfeeling God. Being love, he loves, right? Being wrathful, he's angry, right? Being holy, he is just. Being a father, he has pity on his children. And so when the confession teaches us that, that Jesus was without passions... It really means to say that there are not influences from outside of him that constrain or overrule his will. Nothing comes from outside of God and dictates what God will be or do. That's what it means that God is without passions. You and I are filled with passions. It's almost what makes us human. But all of God's actions are free and unconstrained. He's never constrained by anything. Everything he does is free. And that's what it means to say he's without passions. He's not at the mercy of any outside influence. That's not like us. Things happen around or outside of us that constrain our will, right? You ever have your will constrained by things that happen outside of you? Someone says something. That makes you angry and every bit of love just seems to leach out of your heart. And that person becomes like worse than Hitler in your mind. That's an example of being filled with passions or with passions. Sometimes in a fit of passion, interesting how we call it that, that anger so overcomes our wills that we throw a pan across the room to strike our husband with it. Oh, you're all capable of it. Don't, don't give me those eyes. You're sinners. I'm a sinner. In other words, something happens outside of us and our wills are affected by it. Even to the point that we sin, right? Sometimes... Something tragic happens to us. A child dies. A tragic car accident. And we absolutely lose our joy. Our joy is gone. 
Our wills are inconstant, right? Not so with God. There, there is nothing that diminishes or sways his full command that he has of his own will. He does not take actions in a fit of passion. He does not change, and so his love does not wax and wane as ours does according to outside circumstances. His actions are never dictated to him by something outside of his will. He's entirely in command, being without passions. Okay, And yet, here in our passage this morning, the Son of God, he who was with God and is God, observes his friend and her companions weeping and he's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Is he God or is he not? Is he without passions or not? It seems that he is being overcome by something outside of himself. He's observing pain and that pain is causing him pain. So what are we to make of this? Well, here's the first thing. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God enfleshed. Jesus is, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God, who came down from heaven and was incarnate. Do you know what that, you know what carnitas is? You know, when you go to Chipotle, carnitas means flesh. Pig flesh, in that case incarnate. He was enfleshed by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made what? Man. And your mind begins to boggle. There's no way to properly understand this. The two natures of Christ. God was made man. And then there's this from the Athanasian Creed. Now, this is the true faith that we believe and confess. That our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man. With a rational soul and human flesh, just like us. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. So a real man. A completely real man. Completely God, completely man. And what do we see here in our passage? We see this. What we're observing is the real humanity of Jesus Christ. The real humanity of the incarnate God. Ryle says, as a real man, he was specially moved when he saw Mary and the Jews weeping. As God, he had no need to hear their plain of language and to see their tears in order to learn that they were afflicted. He knew perfectly all their feelings, yet as a man, he was like ourselves, Stirred by the sight of sorrow. For human nature is so constituted that grief is contagious. 
That's part of the human constitution. You see somebody in pain, you sympathize. Or hopefully, you can become so callous that you stop sympathizing with those who are in terrible straits. But it's true, it's true. Seeing people weep at tragedies, at funerals, right? At losses, at difficulties, at, at anxieties causes many of us to get very emotional too. See someone you love crying and you'll cry. We enter into the grief and pain of others. We sympathize with others, right? And we are called to do so by Scripture. We're, we're told even to do it, right? Weep with those who weep. To obey God, to be a good Christian, you should practice that. You should weep with those who weep. Here was Jesus doing as he commanded elsewhere in his word. He's giving us an example of fulfilling his commands. And he's doing it as the incarnate God. Here's the question. Are you able to weep with those who weep? Is this, is this something that you're able to do? Is this something that you care to do? Or do you, when you see people weep, get so uncomfortable that you just whoop, head the opposite direction? How could I possibly? And you, usually you head the other direction, right? Because you think you have to say something. And there's never anything you can say that is appropriate to, to somebody who's weeping. It just, we try and you have to be forgiving of the stupid things pastors say and others say at those times. You just have to be gracious. But, there, but the command is to weep with those who weep. It's not to exhort or talk. It's to weep. Sit down and cry. Put your arm around somebody and cry. Are you capable of that? Or have you become callous? Have we become callous? Has social media made us become callous? We can observe people's grief and just swipe left or right. We can see snippets of, of tragedy and warfare and we can just... Do you, don't, do you realize that makes us callous? It's different for all of us what makes us callous, but I think we generally have a disposition to think that weeping is weakness. That it's actual weakness. To cry is wimpy. To cry is weak. To cry is, is to just to give in too much, right? Where's your self-control? And weakness is despised by proud people. Get a grip, we think. You know, someone loses their, their husband of 53 years and we're like, would you get a grip already? I mean, it's time, to, it's time to balance your checkbook. And then when grief strikes us and we can barely function and we can't get out of bed, we wonder why people won't come along and, and hold us up. Pride kills sympathy. Pride kills sympathy. Ryle says to be cold and stoical and unmoved in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace. 
Not only does Jesus respond to the weeping of Mary and her companions, but he's then taken to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he weeps after he arrives. Imagine the tears rolling down the Son of God's cheeks as he he falls to the ground in anguish. His friend Lazarus is dead. His friend Lazarus is a stinking heap of flesh and bones. This is the Christ that you worship. He is this weeping Christ. That's the Christ you worship. He's no abstract intelligence, right? He's no um, unfeeling force of nature like gravity. Right? He's no enlightened guru. He's not a superhero. He's no, he, he's, he's no third thing, neither God nor man. Right? He's a man who weeps when he sees other, others weeping. He's a man. He weeps when he sees other people weeping. He weeps when he sees his friends die. He weeps as he contemplates just the ravages, the terrible ravages of, of sin that were unleashed upon the world through Adam. He weeps. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is important to say, even as we affirm Jesus' affections were human like ours, is that he was, he was always able to give them the right place. Okay? He was always able to give them the, just the right place because he had emotions, but he was always submitting them to his Father's will. Right? We use them for sin. He always had the right place for, for them. We often do not, I mean, this is like this stupid, most obvious thing I could say, but that's sometimes helpful. We often do not give our emotions, our affections the right place. Right? Do you ever feel at the mercy of your emotions and your affections? Do you ever have flare-ups of emotion that seem like they're dragging you around by your nose? They got a hook in you. They carry us away, right? We live as prisoners of our emotions and emotional insecurity. We, we were perhaps sinned against by our loved ones in terrible ways, right? Some of us may have been sinned against by our loved ones in terrible ways, and that led to a life of self-pity, And then, in a sense, we determine to live with self-pity as our constant companion. That was going to be, we thought, my identity. Self-pity, victim. 
And no matter how much truth is taught to us, no matter how much glorious teaching from God's Word about the new birth and the changed heart and the sovereign compassion of Jesus Christ, we aren't going to give up our self-pity. It's my identity. We, like Christ, must submit those feelings to the commands of God. We must. We must not resist the Holy Spirit who works in us by his word. We must put all of those emotions in the proper place. This is not to deny emotions a place. Jesus wept. After all, there's a place. There is a a place, but it is to say that there is a proper place for them. There's a time to stop weeping, right? There is a time to stop weeping. There is a time to leave off self-pity. There is a time to believe what is written in the Word and stop believing what your deceptive heart has been saying to you over and over and over again through the years. Believe what's written, not what your heart is screaming at you. Your feelings are not infallible, no matter what young and modern psychology would tell you. The Word of God is infallible, and you are called to live and feel by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how you orient your, your, your everything. By the word of God. And ladies, this includes you. Submit your sorrow and fearfulness to God's word. Submit it to God's word. Stop believing what your heart is telling you and believe what God's word says. Children, this includes you. Submit your angst and your anxiety to God's word. There are words there for you, and they are more true than the the falsehoods that your heart is saying to you. And men, this includes you. Submit your anger, your aggression, your anger to God's word. Submit it there. Find truth and live according to that word and stop, stop listening to your heart. Now, Calvin Calvin argues that Jesus was not merely groaning at this point. He was not merely weeping or groaning for the sadness he felt at the loss of his friend, but but he went cosmic. He's being sympathetic, yes, but rather that he was weeping that the general at the general misery of the whole race. And so in the death of his friend, he's like pulling back and remembering what is what God has called him to, and he's weeping that there's sin in the world. He's pulling back from this. In fact, that would evidence that he was submitting his emotions to his father's will. It's the difference between you being overcome by your sorrow and you sorrowing at your sins and the sins of the world. That's appropriate sorrow. Wallowing in sorrow is inappropriate. Being sorrowful about your sins and the sin of the world is appropriate. Right? It's the difference between being controlled by your anger and being angry at your anger. Angry in a righteous way. Anger towards sin. Not angry at your children or your spouse. 
Scripture says this of Christians, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified that flesh. Killed it. Put it to death. So you are not entitled to feel whatever you want to feel. You are not entitled. It is not helpful to you. It's bad medicine. It's a poison pill. If you allow yourself to feel whatever you feel, if you think you're entitled to that, welcome to misery. You must stop hindering the Spirit's work to sanctify your emotions, your feelings, your responses. Now, what else do we learn from Jesus weeping at Lazarus' tomb? Jesus knows that what we go through in this fallen world, doesn't he? He genuinely pities us. Genuinely pities us. Although, again, this is, this is sympathy. And he knows it because he is omniscient God and he has experienced what it is to be a man. In fact, he still is experiencing what it means to be a man even now. So guard your hearts against callousness and remember that your grief and pain is a cause for the Son of God's concern and sympathy and pity. Your grief and pain, God is concerned about. Which is to say that He knows. God knows. He knows of your heartache. He knows of your fears. He knows of your anxieties. He desires you to be free from such sorrow and weight, and has given his spirit to his children, who is called what? The Comforter. The Comforter. The Holy Spirit lives within you to comfort you, to remove from you these anxieties and, 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 and this sadness. Now, I want to take this in a little bit of a, of a strange direction. As I contemplated, I mean, just think about the fact, just think about the fact that Jesus wept. The incarnate Son of God, in, this, in, in what is recorded here, in this history, just cried his eyes out. He wept. And, and this is what I want to say. This example of Jesus here of weeping, of being sympathetic, of looking upon sin and looking upon the sin of the world, looking on the ravages of sin, but, but also just looking on the sinfulness of the world. He's been pestered by sinners up to this point. The Pharisees have been coming after him, right? He's seeing all of this sin. He's being attacked. Everything is about it. And here Jesus pulls back from all of that that affects him and just weeps at the ravages of sin. Bombastic Christianity is very popular today among a certain subset of the tiny fragment of the church called the Reformed Church. Bombastic Christianity. The call of the day is to mock the blindness of the world. 
and the stupidity of those who don't have the Holy Spirit. That's the call of the Reformed Church today. Mock sinners. What idiots. Look at everything they've given themselves to. There is a call for muscular Christianity. Right? And you you know that I'm quite sympathetic to that call. Right? I've called and called and called for that. We have watered down the message of Christ. We have feminized the church. We have made men feel uncomfortable in worship as we sing uh, soft little love songs. We cater to feminine sensibilities. We have retreated from the public square, right? We don't even, we, we, we do not call sin, sin anymore, right? Maybe mistakes. We have shunned repentance, But even though we must repent of those things, we must avoid becoming bombastic and belligerent and proud and heartless. We have to avoid that. Our tendency is always to overcorrect. We overcorrect, right? We we forget about the weeping of Jesus Christ and forbid him any work other than as a king doling out justice upon the sinful world. We forget that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We forget... Well, we we proudly refuse to cry about the sins of the world and live to mock the blindness of those who are dead in their sins. That's what we become. We don't weep like Jesus did as he contemplated the sin of the world. We honestly add our voices to Fox News' belligerating. It's not Christian. In a few words, we have become cruel. Cruel. We forget that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was you. The ungodly, the blind, the stupid. I mean, just think of the doctrines you held to before God got a hold of you. Ryle says, let us strive to be men and women of a tender heart and a sympathizing spirit. Let us never be ashamed to weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. Well would it be for the church and the world if there were more Christians of this stamp and character. The church would be far more beautiful and the world, he says, would be far more happy. It is not a virtue to always be cold and stoic and philosophical. It is not a virtue to have a well-honed sense of justice. Just as we ought to remember Lot's wife who looked back and longed for the sinful world, um, the sinful world she had just been rescued from, so we must remember the weeping of Jesus Christ. Weeping. The sin of the world made him weep. 
He left his father's glory, right? The glory he had eternally enjoyed with his father to redeem a sin-saturated world. He shed his blood for that world. And there in the midst of it, as he's, he's now very close to the cross, we're weeks away from the cross, and he knows what he has to do, and he's weeping. He's crying about sin. Ravages, it's destruction. He's weeping about everything that has, has given you so much pain in this life. So, by all means, reject the softness of evangelical Christianity. Make sure the church has a prophetic voice in our culture. Fight against true tyranny. Serve King Jesus. Do all those things, but avoid the pride that responds to sinners with disgust instead of compassion. What would you be without the sympathy, kindness, tenderness, long-suffering nature of Jesus Christ? Are your sins the kind that didn't deserve God's wrath? Right? And didn't require the blood of the Son of God. You got clean sins. Remember Christ's weeping. Remember him weeping because of the death that came into this world because of sin. Three times Jesus wept. Right? In Scripture. He, we know he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And three times he wept. He, he wept as he beheld the blindness and hardness of heart of the city of Jerusalem. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane as he approached the cross where he would bear the sins of the world. He wept there and sweat blood. And, as, and here, here, these three times are recorded that he weeps. And yet, Ryle points out, we, never, we are never told that he laughed. Isn't that interesting? He never laughed. Now, as we've come to expect, the work of Jesus leads to division. Whatever Jesus says, whatever he does, it always leads to division. And we've seen that time and time again in the Gospel of John, right? Look at verses 36 and 37. Some who observed Jesus weeping interpreted it as a demonstration of his love for his friend Lazarus. See how he loved him? Look at that. He loved Lazarus. Others were still where Mary and Martha had been, wondering why Jesus, who had done so many other amazing things like opening the eyes of a man born blind, why he didn't do what needed to be done to keep Lazarus from dying. They're like, why didn't he do it? What's up? Some see Jesus weeping and see it as love. Some see Jesus weeping and see it as impotence, failure, weakness. He's dividing everybody. Now, how do you understand Jesus weeping? Do you see Jesus' tenderness here as a a virtue or a liability? Right? Do you see it as weakness or strength? 
What is it to you? Some saw his human compassion, though they may not have given him enough praise as the Son of God. Right? They just saw him as a man who was sad. And maybe they should have, maybe they should have opened their minds a little more and thought about his healing powers. Others saw him fail to do as he had done before, heal a sick man. And of those people, Calvin says they were rude and impatient in their demands. Rude and impatient in their demands. Why didn't he heal this man? It's that Sunday where the, the car shines right on my face. It's the summer solstice. I always know. When the, okay, anyway. Now think about the differences in those responses, those two responses. Some are like, wow, he loved him. And others are like, Wow, he failed. He couldn't do this. Wow, he loved him. Wow, he failed. Perhaps the difference in their responses explains why pastors and church leaders often try to recast Jesus to build their kingdoms or at best emphasize certain attributes of Jesus to the exclusion of those that contradict their vision. Evangelicals, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, modern Mega churches, book publishers, Christian feminists have cast Jesus as a weeping pile of mush, right? And forgotten his transcendent reign as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then on the other side, Reconstructionist and Christian masculinists have cast Jesus as a graceless lawgiver and seem disappointed that his power is not currently on display in the nations. Boy, he certainly is failing now to reign as, as the king he says he is. The former, the softies, revel in his human emotions. The latter, the hardies, we'll call them, are rude and impatient in their demands of God. The evangelicals glory in Christ as gentle and lowly and forbid him to be powerful and princely. The reconstructionists glory in Christ as powerful and princely and forbid him to be gentle and lowly. The one sees him as, as the, fr the one sees him only as a friend of sinners and the other sees him only as a judge of sinners. The temptation for us, though, tends toward the harsh side of things, not the mushy, soft side of things. We've gotten tired of evangelicals uh, wanting Jesus to be impotent, well, you know. Um, but we must avoid the error of diminishing God's love for sinners, his friendship to sinners, his patience and long-suffering posture towards sinners, his desire, in fact, for all to come to repentance. His grace and kindness and mercy, his stirring up of his people to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which they have been comforted. An indication that the crunchy reform post-millennial reconstructionists, an indication that they have finally learned this lesson and embraced something beyond a caricature of God, 
will be when they begin to do what the evangelicals did so well, go out to lost sinners and tell them about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they'll go out not because they wish to make the nations Christian. They'll go out because they do not want to see souls perish and go into eternal hellfire. In other words, they'll have an evangelical heart and not a political heart. And they will learn to weep with those who weep. What glory that would be. Give me a crunchy post-millennial reconstructionist who weeps and I'll be happy. I'll, I'll take a step back from taking out my bat every time I can. Because it will indicate that they love sinners and they don't exist just to antagonize the stupid. It will mean that they care about the grace of God and not just the law of God. Jesus wept. The king of kings wept. He cried his eyes out as he contemplated the ravages, the terrible predicament of sin. He who came to redeem the world from sin wept over the ravages of sin as he experienced it in the death of his friend Lazarus. And so let's see it as our goal to stir up our hearts in a similar way. You know, may God be pleased to enlarge our hearts so that we can weep for sinners. Weep over the destructiveness of sin and ultimately look to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May our eyes just, may, may we pour down tears for how the, the world is being ravaged by sin and Satan right now. And cry out for God to send his spirit, to draw people to himself so they will know comfort in this life and comfort in the next.